So if you would, open up with me in your Bible to Jude verse 8. Jude verse 8. If you don't have your Bible, or you don't have a Bible, uh, there should be a hardback black one close to you. Uh, we would invite you to, to turn there with us. Um, if you don't, you'll, you'll probably be bored because my sermon is going to be based on this text, right? And so um, if you don't own a Bible, uh, we would encourage you to, to take this Bible and make it your own and, and consider it a gift from the church. And so when you get to Jude 8, uh, go ahead and bow your head with me because we're going to start with prayer this morning. Father, I, I thank you for today. I thank you for this church. I thank you for Jesus who died for this church. I thank you for the Holy Spirit who has equipped this church to be a gospel witness in the Hatch Valley. Father, I, I pray that you would open up our eyes, help us to see the truths of your word, and help us to not miss what, what Jude is, is wanting us to see. Help us not to miss the connections that he's making. Father, help us to come to a, a deeper understanding of, of what it means to be the church and to have church leaders. Father, it didn't surprise you because you are sovereign that this sermon would be preached today. And so, God, I, I'm asking you to move in it. Father, equip us to better be the church. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes, that we may behold wondrous things in your law. And we ask you to speak, Lord, for your servants are listening, for your glory and for our good. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So I want you to take a pretend field trip with me right now. I want us to pretend that we are in New York City in the 1840s. And so, and, and we are, uh, we're well-to-do folks in New York City in the 1840s. And so we're dressed appropriately. I mean, I guess you could wear a t-shirt and flip-flops in the 1840s if you wanted to, but that would be a little out of a little out of fashion, um, but I, I would have a top hat and, and, and a long tail coat and a handkerchief for a tie. Um, you would obviously be dressed however you wanted to be dressed. And imagine that a man comes up to me and he, he enters into a conversation like we know each other. And I'm not quite sure that I know him, but you know, I'm a well-to-do person in New York City. I want to be well thought of. And this man is dressed very nicely. So if he knows me, then I must know him. So I act like I know him as well. And then he tells me, he says, sir, I have two important business meetings today. And then he opens up the, the, the vest of his jacket and he says, but as you can see, I've forgotten my watch. Do you have confidence in me? to give me, the, give me your watch for the day, and I will meet you here at the same time tomorrow to return it. This is how William Thompson in the 1840s became rich in New York City. He was what was called a confidence man, or as we would know it today, as a con man. He conned thousands of people out of watches in New York City until he was finally caught. 
Now, we're going to deal with a very interesting passage in Jude. And what Jude is going to help us understand is that the church has always struggled with con men. There have always been people who have come into the church who have been gifted towards teaching, but have, they haven't had the character to match the gifting. And they've taken advantage of people and they've hurt people. And so Jude wants to warn the church that he's writing to about these folks. And he wants to give them, he wants to give them some traits to notice. And, and he wants to encourage them that, one, Jesus is the Lord of his church. And so these, these folks, they will be found out. But at the same time, Jesus has gifted the church with godly leaders who will point them back to him. And those are the folks that the church should follow. And so I want to jump into the text, starting in verse 8, where Jude says this. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. So if you remember from last week, Jude had introduced these false teachers to us, this idea of false teachers. And so he wants to connect this paragraph with the paragraph that we studied last week. But he wants us to, to understand who they are. And so the first thing we notice from verse 8 is that they rely on their dreams. Friends, it's interesting to be a Christian in the United States in the 21st century. You can literally go to any type of, of church that is, is represented around the world within, I don't know, probably a 45-minute drive from here. And you will have churches that will tell you that the prophecies that they hear and the dreams that they dream carry equal, if not more, weight than the Scriptures. And Jude wants us to be careful around these folks. Because the people that come to us and say, this is what the dream told me, and it contradicts or calls us to do something instead of what the Bible teaches us, we are not to listen to them. He tells us not only do they rely on their dreams, but they defile the flesh. Friends, these people are so consumed by their sinful desires that they are harming their bodies and the bodies of the people around them. They also reject authority. They do not want to have Jesus as their Lord. And they do not want any, any type of oversight within the church. Fourth thing is that they blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, the glorious ones here, this is, this is a tough translation. Um, the, what it really, I mean, if, if we're using a literal translation, ones wouldn't even be in there. It would just be, they, and they blaspheme the glorious. And so there's really two options for us here. 
Um, the first option is maybe Jude is talking about angels, right? He's talking about angels previously. He's about to talk about angels again. Maybe that's who Jude is talking about, but I don't think that's it. I think he's talking about the church. I think he's talking about the people of God. And you might think to yourself, Andy, I appreciate your confidence in me, but I don't quite feel glorious. Let me remind you that in Romans chapter 8, verse 30, Paul tells us that those whom God has, has chosen and called and saved, they will be glorified. So when Jude refers to us as the glorious ones, don't think that this is a glory that comes from yourself. This is much more like the glory of the moon, right? The only reason we can see the moon is why? Because the sun reflects off of it. And so the moon reflects the glory of the sun. And so we are glorious ones because we do what? We reflect the glory of God. So these false teachers, they come in and they have these four characteristics. They trust their experience over God's word. They ruin their bodies with sin. They reject Jesus and his church. And they speak ill of God's people. But Jude continues in verse 9. He says, but when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, this is where things get fun with Jude, if we haven't had fun already in this book. Nowhere does this story show up in the Bible. So the question is, what is Jude talking about? I mean, what's this whole thing with the body of Moses? The archangel Michael, the devil, what, what do we do with this? Well, there was, a, there was a book of Jewish traditional teaching called The Assumption of Moses. And in The Assumption of Moses, this story comes up. And so this is after Moses has, has died, the people of Israel are about to enter into the promised land. And there's an argument over the body of Moses between the devil and the archangel Michael. And here's, here's, here's the hard thing, right? Because this story isn't in the Old Testament, because it comes from this, this collection of Jewish teachings, we don't exactly know what to do with it. Is it a true story? Is it just an illustrative story? I'm going to tell you this. Jude does not think that the assumption of Moses should be in our Bible, Okay? Jude may believe this story is true, he may not, but he thinks this is a way that he can illustrate what he's teaching to the people that are reading his letter. And so this, this illustration, as odd as it is, helps us realize that you have this angel talking to this demon, arguing over what to do with Moses' body, and the angel doesn't pronounce any judgment on the devil, because it's not his place. What does he say at the end of that, of that verse? The Lord rebuke you. So here's what we know from this little itty-bitty illustration. One, Satan was in the wrong, which shouldn't surprise us because the devil is, a, is in open rebellion against God. So he's almost always wrong, right? I mean, he could say two plus two equals four and he would be right, but his intentions would be wrong because he's against God, okay? But two... Michael 
doesn't want, he knows the devil is wrong. He's using his judgment and his conscience and, 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 and his ability to reason to see that the devil is wrong, but he doesn't see it as his place to condemn. So he says what? I'm going to let the Lord do it. The Lord rebuke you. And so what, what Jude wants us to understand is that even angels trust God to reveal the truth and discipline accordingly. And that's important because of what we're about to be told in verse 10. If you look at verse 10, Jude says this, but these people, so he's going back to, to the false teachers in the church. He says, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Notice we've heard the term blaspheme three times now. First, it was in, in connection to speaking ill of, of believers. Then it's Michael not wanting to give a blasphemous judgment. And now he's here telling us that these false teachers, they blaspheme what they do not understand. The word blasphemy carries a lot of weight with it. Because the first true definition of blasphemy is to speak irreverently of God. But blasphemy can carry out from that in terms of, of speaking ill of or speaking irreverently of the people that God is working through. And so what Jude is, is wanting to be careful about explaining to us is that these false teachers are actively teaching within the church and calling into question those whom God is using for his glory. They are, they are trying to get in the way of what God is doing. They are trying to disrupt what God is doing. And one of the ways they're doing it is blaspheming his people. Notice that he uses the word understand twice in this verse. He calls them unreasoning animals. He says they do not understand like Jude and true believers would understand. But rather they understand by instinct. And this helps us to realize that false teachers act and think on instinct. They are not guided by the Holy Spirit or by Scripture. And this is a good place for us to pause and think about how our first reaction to all things must be led by the Holy Spirit and guided by the Word of God. When we act on instinct, oftentimes we act in sin. Now, of course, the hope would be that we would train ourselves through trusting the Holy Spirit and through knowing the Word of God that eventually our instinct would be good. But friends... As someone who's been a believer now for going on 18 years, I'm still trying to train my instincts, right? Sometimes my instinctual reaction is not God-honoring. But the false teachers never honor God with their instincts. Verse 11, Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain, and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir, and perished in Korah's rebellion. One of the beautiful things about Jude, he likes doing things in threes, and he loves the Old Testament, right? So he's going to take us back to the Old Testament. Um, 
The first one he mentions is Cain. If you go back to Genesis chapter 4, you'll read the story about some of the first humans. They were brothers, Cain and Abel. Um, Abel presented a sacrifice to God and it was acceptable. Cain presented a sacrifice to God. It was unacceptable. Cain grew jealous and he killed his brother. The first murder in history. Jude is placing these false teachers in that same category. He is telling us that they hate true believers like murderers. And then he goes on to say that they abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir. Now, Balaam was a prophet that we meet in Numbers chapter 16. As God is leading his people Israel into the promised land, the king of Moab gets concerned. And so he calls for Balaam, and he offers Balaam great riches if he will bring down a curse from God on the people of Israel. And Balaam says, look, I can't do that. I'm a prophet. I can only do what God tells me to do. But eventually, the king of Moab puts Balaam in a place where he has to say yes. And of course, Balaam makes money off of that. Um, All throughout the Old Testament, Balaam is, is derided because... He really became the first false prophet, the first one to, to, to teach or prophesy something for the sake of his gain and really to hurt the people of God. And so it makes more sense, I think, for us that these false teachers are thrown in with Balaam because that's exactly what they're doing. They're teaching false things to, to get money and sex and esteem from the church. The final people that he connects the false teachers to is Korah. Korah's rebellion happened in Numbers chapter 16. Um, Korah and, and some other leaders in Israel rose up against Moses and Aaron. They decided that they didn't want their leadership anymore. And so God pronounces judgment on the people of Israel. He tells Moses and Aaron to get away from the rest of Israel. He's going to destroy them and just start all over with Moses and Aaron. And then Moses and Aaron intercede on behalf of Israel. And God tells Moses and Aaron, he says, tell the people of Israel to get away from Korah and those that are with him in the rebellion. There were 250 elders of Israel from different tribes that rose up with Korah in this rebellion. And so what what Moses and Aaron tell them to do is is Moses and Aaron are going to take these censers and, and, and fill them uh, and, and set them on fire and, and place them before the Lord. And Korah and those in his rebellion are going to do the same. And they're going to see which offering God receives. And what happens is when Moses and Aaron tell the people of Israel to get away from Korah and, and those that are with him, the ground actually opens up and it swallows Korah, the rest of those in the, in the rebellion, and with Korah's families and those families that were connected. Um, this was, a, this was a harsh moment in Israel's history. And God showed his justice against those who would question God by questioning Moses and Aaron. And so what Jude is saying here is that these false teachers, they hate like murderers, they twist God's word for gain, and they rebel against Jesus and his church. Now we have to be careful with this Korah illustration 
Um, because a lot of times when we look at Moses and Aaron, we're going to, I mean, the first person you're going to think of when you think of Moses is me, right? Um, but, but I would argue that most of the time within the story of Moses, Moses is not an example of leadership. He's a foreshadowing of Jesus, right? And so <clears throat> I'm just going to put it like this. Um, I'm more like Aaron as long as I'm speaking what I'm supposed to be speaking, right? Um, and, and if I begin to rebel against Jesus, then I'm not going to be like Aaron anymore. I'm, I'm going to be like Korah, right? And so, um, so, so we need to keep that in mind when we look at, at that illustration. We, we go to verse 12. Jude continues. He says, these, so he, when he says these, you can add people there, right? These people are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead and uprooted. So here we see Judas is really, he's going to give us six quick illustrations. And he starts with the first four in verse 12 of, of who these false teachers are. And he begins with the fact that they are hidden reefs at their love feasts. Now, these love feasts, we need to, you guys are probably going to want us to change our... our uh, our Lord's Supper days. But the love feasts were when the church would gather together and they would break the bread and they would pour out the wine and they would celebrate communion and then they would have a whole spread of lunch to eat together. All right? And so, you know, this is how we know the early churches were Baptists because they love to eat together just like we do. Um, it was a joke. Y'all can laugh at that. I know it wasn't very funny, but don't take that um, super seriously. Anyways, um, and so he says that they're like hidden reefs at these love feasts. And friends, a reef for us sounds cool. It's something that you would go snorkel in, right? A reef back then was dangerous because reefs are what caught ships and caused them to sink. This is not a good thing. Jude is saying that they are shipwreckers, that they are shipwrecking faith instead of pointing to the sure and steady anchor that we just read about in Hebrews chapter 6. Instead of pointing people to Jesus, they're destroying their faith. And then he says that they are shepherds feeding themselves. Now this would take us back to the Old Testament where Jeremiah talks about how the prophet, the false prophets and the priests of, of Judah, were, they were shepherds that were gorging themselves and not feeding the sheep. But of course, we want to go to John chapter 10, where Jesus calls himself what? The good shepherd. So as we see these false teachers feeding themselves, right, gorging themselves at the feast, instead of lovingly laying down their lives for the sheep like Jesus does. The third thing that we see is that they are waterless clouds swept along by winds. A waterless cloud does not provide rain, right? And a waterless cloud has no foundation because it shifts easily with the wind. This is an exact, in, in the exact opposite position as God in Exodus chapter 13 when he's leading the people of Israel out of the promised land. How does he do it? With a cloud by day and fire by night. When the cloud moves, Israel moves. When the cloud rests, Israel rests. And don't forget, not only does it lead them, or not only does God lead them through that, but when Egypt came, you remember last week 
what we read at the beginning of the service, when Egypt was coming to destroy Israel, when they were trapped between the Red Sea and the Egyptian army, that cloud went from in front of them to behind them to protect them. Friends, these false teachers, they just want to say whatever they can to gain whatever they can. And here, Jude is telling us that Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus is the cloud that leads and the cloud that protects. And the fourth thing that Jude says about them here is that they are fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. This is why I love preaching in a farming community, right? If there's a tree, if there's a tree that doesn't produce anything in the fall, what are we going to do with it? We're going to tear it down. We're going to take it out. It's dead. It's useless. That's what these teachers were. They were dead trees. They, not only did they not have life in them, but they were not giving life. And this should take us back to John chapter 15, when Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. And how are we known to be disciples? By the fruit that we produce. Friends, false teachers may look good and sound good and have flashy cars and, and all kinds of other wonderful things. But if they are not bearing God-honoring fruit, they are dead trees. If they are not pointing us again and again to the gospel of Jesus Christ, they are not only dead trees, but they are infecting us. The only way that we can, can grow fruit out of our lives is if we're in the true vine. And the only way to be in the true vine week after week, day after day, is to have folks reminding us of who Jesus is and what he has done. We finish, we finish with verse 13. Jude says, They are wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Right? Think of Mark chapter 4, when Jesus is with his disciples, and the storm comes, and the disciples get scared. And we know it must have been a bad storm, because a lot of the disciples were what? They were fishermen. They had dealt with this their whole lives. And Jesus is asleep on the boat. And they go to Jesus and they say, Jesus, wake up. We're about to die. And Jesus stands up and he says, peace, be still. And the wind ceases and the waves calm down. You see, false teachers want to cause division and derision. And, and they want to create chaos with what they do. And Jesus is the one who steps in and he says, peace, be still, and it happens. And do not forget the multiple times in the book of Psalms where the psalmists sing, only God has control of the waves. Only God has control of the wind. Only God can tell the sea what to do. There was a moment where Jesus was claiming to be God, but also reminding us that he is the one who brings peace. And the final thing that they are, wandering stars. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter tells us that we have a sure hope in the scriptures. 
that there is no more sure prophetic word than what we have in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the reason we know that Peter is talking about the Old Testament and the New Testament and not just the Old Testament is because at the end of 2 Peter, Peter actually says that Paul sometimes is hard to read. That makes me feel better that, Paul str- that Peter struggled with Paul because sometimes I struggle with Paul, right? But then he says, and false teachers twist his letters like they do the rest of Scripture. So even Peter in his letter was referring to Paul's letters as Scripture, as holy writing, as words from God. And so as as Peter is trying to encourage us, he says that we need to hold on to the Scriptures until the bright morning star comes. You know who that bright morning star is? It's Jesus. And while the false teachers are wandering stars, Jesus is a fixed point. He is the true north star. He is the one that we can always look to, to know where we are, to know who God is, and to know how much God loves us. So in verse 13, we see that they have no direction Their doom is sure. And Jesus is the one that calms storms. And he is the true North Star. So what does all this mean? As we walk through this paragraph, what what is Jude telling us? This is our our main point for today. The church needs loyal sheepdogs pointing her to her senior pastor, Jesus. Jesus. The church needs loyal sheepdogs pointing her to her senior pastor, Jesus. Friends, your soul needs a steady anchor. And the only person who can meet that need is Jesus. No one else can do that for you. No pastor no teacher, no spouse, no child. Jesus has to be the anchor for your soul. And friends, if you're in here today and you're not a Christian, the one thing I don't want you to do with Jesus is to turn him into a guru because gurus hang out on mountaintops. They sit above people and they, they, they give their, their wonderfully deep teaching, which oftentimes is... It's a mile long, but an inch deep. Friends, Jesus is not a guru. He lived, died, and came back to life to save us and change us. Do not treat Jesus as just some sort of prophet or teacher. He is either Lord or he's nothing. Christian, we must look at Jesus as our Lord. We must fight against what I just warned non-Christians about. We must fight against making him a guru. He must be Lord of all of us. If he, if he, if he is not the Lord of everything about us, then he is not our Lord. And if you're worried about being duped by false teachers, if Jesus is your Lord, he will not let you be duped. 
He will fill you with his Holy Spirit. He will lead you in his word, and he will keep you safe. Church, we need to anchor ourselves to the gospel. That's where we drop our anchor, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for sinners like us. We need to feed on the Bible. When Jesus tells Peter to feed his sheep, he doesn't mean with literal food. He's telling them to give them the gospel, to give them the word. And so what we need every Sunday is to be fed on the word of God. We need a feast prepared before us and we need to dig in together. Church, we must abide in Jesus. He must be the life of everything that we do because apart from him, we can do nothing. And we need to set our eyes on him as the one true and only North Star. I want to close with a story of a dog named Hachiku. Hachiku was the pet of a professor of agriculture at the University of Tokyo named Dr. Ueno. And Hachiku, uh, Dr. Ueno was single, uh, didn't have any kids. And so when he, we, when he took this dog in, um, they, they became the best of buds. And Hachiku would go to the train station every day at 5 o'clock to meet Dr. Ueno. And one day, Dr. Ueno didn't come home from work. He had a cerebral hemorrhage, and he died. And that dog showed up, and when he didn't come home, he went to his master's gardener who lived next door, and he stayed there. And for nine years, at five o'clock, he would go to the train station to wait on his master. This church needs leadership as faithful and loyal as that dog. We need to be people who know that we are not the answer, and sometimes we may not know the answers, but we know the man who is the answer, and we know the man who has the answers, and his name is Jesus. So from our nursery workers who are holding babies, to the preacher, we all need to be loyal to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for this day. Uh, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. And we thank you for your word. God, we're, we're asking you to, to work in us, to make us more like you. Help, help us as, as leaders to, to love you and, and to, to point others to you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, I want to give us a, a time to respond. And so if, if you're an unbeliever, you, you've heard about the good news of Jesus.